Fukan Zazengi Universal recommended, recommended Instructions for Zazen for Zazen or Universally Recommended Precautions for Zazen. This text by Dogen Zenji is read here in the afternoon sitting periods in the non-session times, and this session will read it in the late afternoon. And I'll talk about it throughout this session. One of the aspects that are important for us to know is that, in a sense, there are different ways of understanding this that are reflected in different translations of words and phrases, which from time to time I'll bring up. And also that there are a number of versions of this text. It was first written in 1227, soon after Dogen returned from China. At the latest, I mean, we're not sure. Remember, we're talking about a text of almost... 800 years ago and versions of it exist from different times. So we have an early version that's written either 1227 or up to as late as 1233 which is essentially the Um, first version of the work and then we have another version which is the one that we translate which is the accepted version which could have been written anywhere sometime after 1233 but anywhere more likely in the period between 1242 and 1246 And these two texts, though the first is clearly the earliest and the later is a reworking and elaboration of the uh, early text, which is called the Tenpuku Manuscript, because that's where it's connected to. The later version is in the Ehe Kuroku, the collected works of Dogen, and is significantly different in the sense that it adds, amends uh, various parts. Another English translation of the title is Recommending Zazen to All People. Notice there's a different flavor when you say it that way as opposed to universally recommended instructions for Zazen. The first way of saying could also be seen as saying these are the instructions that I recommend universally for those who are doing Zazen, but less emphasis on that everyone should do Zazen. Though we do know that the early version of the text was written when Dogen came back from China and he was seeing himself as teaching Zazen (coughs) for all people. He was living in the capital and his intention was to include everyone, lay people, ordained people, peasants and um, 
literate people, upper class and lower class, men, women, and that the later version was really emphasized teaching for his primary um, disciples, which were monastics, when Dogen, uh, in a sense, retreated from the capital, from where the um, major economic, political, etc. classes in the society lived, and um, retreated to a mountainous area where he was primarily emphasizing and teaching for the monastics who were living with him. Um, Though he did have some lay people who he was working with and teaching at that time. And I'll talk about this a little bit later as we get into talking about this work. Um, So this is an manual in a sense, among other things, a manual for Zazen. Um, But actually there's, you could say, three different parts to this. The first um, is Dogen's explanation for Zen practice. His encouragement for doing Zen, his, in a sense, almost philosophical um, text, and in many ways a fundamental Chan-style text. The second section is the simple instructions for how to do Zazen, which in a, to a great extent is um, following a traditional um, in Chinese instruction for uh, Zazen or a popular, you can call it meditation manual. Um, there was one that was written in China by a Yunmen Chan monk named Tsung Tse, um, and it was simply called uh, Chan Met Manual, or Zen Manual, or Zazen Manual. And to a great extent, Dogen lifted parts of that, um, though that, that manual, um, what should I say? because it came from someone who also emphasized amalgamation of um, pure land practice and Zen practice, um, it had, uh, it wasn't that accepted by those who really wanted to emphasize Zen school and We'll talk a little about that later on. Then the third part of the Fukan Zazengi is the, where um, Dogen extols the virtue of Zazen, of meditation, and he encourages, even exhorts everyone to practice Zazen and again extends his own understanding of Zazen. So, um, it's important to be aware of that. So let's start with universally recommended instructions for Zazen. Universally recommended instructions for Zazen. So what is How does Dogen begin? The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. Or another translation of Dogen. Remember, when we translate, of course, from 
Japanese, and not only from Japanese, but from uh, 12th, 13th century Japanese, which is sort of pre-medieval um, Japanese. So even a Japanese person needs a translation into modern Japanese to understand it, but when we translate it into English, we also then get the flavor of the translator's understanding. So the way is originally perfect and all-pervading. That's the text we, we would use, which is the um, uh, commonly accepted Soto school text. Um, we, another way to translate it is the way is universal and absolute, or else the way is all around, all around. Another translation is the real way circulates everywhere, circulates everywhere. Notice the different flavors. Nevertheless, there's a sense that it's accessible, accessible in all sorts of activities and functioning and doesn't depend on certain circumstances and condition. Or, as Dogen says, how could it require practice or enlightenment? Or how could it be contingent on practice and realization? This is a very important point though it's not yet getting to the Zazen, but nevertheless, the fact is this way is not something outside of ourself, not something that is separate. In a way, it's, we could say it is our very life, our very functioning. And yet, he uses the well, we use the word perfect. What does perfect mean? What does saying the way is originally perfect and all-pervading? Or we could say the other way and ask, what do we mean when we say something is not perfect? What dualistic, skewed processes of judgment that do we put onto reality? What do we mean when we say this isn't perfectly the way it ought to be? We could say that perfect means, if we explain, perfect means manifestation exactly as it is as it should be of ongoing cause-effect, which is this no particular thing, universe as it is, not separate, not separate, or no separate perfect permanent self, or self and others, meaning the way this universe is manifesting interdependence exactly the way it is. All-pervading means nothing is lacking this. No one is lacking it. Not, no thing, no event, no circumstance is lacking. But do we believe this? Do we believe this? even though it's all-pervading, even though it's not contingent, yet we can miss it. How do we know we could miss it? Because we do. 
How do we know we can deviate from it in our functioning? Because we see the results of our activities and encounters. Even as we're not off of it, it seems to us that we are. And that's very important. There's a text, we don't recite it very often, Identity of Relative and Absolute, which has a line, if you do not see the way, you do not see it even as you walk on it. When you walk the way, it is not near, it is not far. When you walk the way, it is not... When That's my emphasis. When we are walking on the way, despite that we are walking on the way, it's not near, it's not far. So, Dogen continues, how could it be contingent on practice and realization? In one sense, he's undercutting any ideas we have about Zazen leading us to realization. How could it be contingent on practice and realization? If we go further, how could it be contingent on how we think or feel on what we accomplish or lack of accomplishment? And yet, and yet, Despite not being contingent, it could be missed even as it is not elsewhere or anywhere. One, as, as I said, we translated how could it be contingent on practice and realization. Another translation in the English is it is unnecessary to distinguish between practice and enlightenment. That's an interesting Difference. Remember, the differences are subtle. Another translation says the essential teaching is fully available. Fully available means always right your in-out breath each moment. How could effort be necessary? How could effort be necessary? Ah, effort is not necessary, but... Without effort, it's not at all here, it seems. And yet, how could effort be necessary? Or what is effort? Or what is it, what is it that we see as effort? What is it we see as extra in effort? What is it that we add on? Other translation says, why should we expand, expend sustained effort? It's naturally unrestricted. Another translation. So let me bring in a different text so we can clarify further. This is from a sutra. Moggallana asks Buddha, How can it be briefly explained how, he would say, monk or how practitioner becomes liberated by the elimination of craving? The Buddha responds, and I'll quote just a portion of it. A monk learned, nothing is fit to be clung to. Emphasis. Nothing is fit to be clung to. Or, we, one learns, a practitioner learns, a practitioner discovers that nothing is fit to be attached to, to be caught by. How do we learn it? Well, when a monk has learned that nothing is fit to be clung to, It's because he directly knows everything. He directly knows everything is that he fully comprehends everything. When he fully comprehends everything, he knows that whatever feelings he experiences, be they pleasant, painful, or neutral, 
he's aware, he abides in their impermanence, their ongoing changes, the ongoing changes in these feelings. See, this is another way of saying what is it that traps us is when we are unable to abide in the ongoing changing. If, as we are able to abide in the contemplation or awareness or the being these ongoing changing, ongoing changing feelings, ongoing, we're able to be dispassionate or unentangled or uncaught up. This is contemplating the ending of these feelings and also contemplating or being aware of letting go of these feelings. Letting go of these thoughts, emotions, and so forth. Letting go. When thus abiding, he doesn't cling to anything. And without clinging, he, she, is not agitated. And without agitation, we, he, she, personally attains the complete extinction of defilements, of what makes things difficult. This is, how could it be contingent on practice and realization, and yet... And yet there is practice and realization. And yet. We discover, all of us, that we believe that there is enlightenment lacking. There is something lacking. And only if we do something to attain it, to fix it, something like practice. And that practice is something else, somewhere else. Then we somehow add on the idea that if I practice, I'll get to enlightenment. And then when I will be whatever enlightened is, I'll no longer need to practice. See, that's all of that is our misunderstanding. That's why we emphasize and we clarify. And that's why Dogen throughout the Fukan Zazengi emphasizes it's not a matter of practice and then having realization. That's why Dogen emphasizes in the Fukan Zazengi that even after in wake, awakening or enlightenment, Shakyamuni Buddha continued sitting, continued practice. Because practice isn't about getting somewhere else, but is always the practice of being what is not contingent, which is what we always are, which is the perfect way that is naturally unrestricted restricted, undependent, which is who we are. Some of you might be familiar with a case that I've talked about in the past where Nanyue comes to the sixth ancestor. Nanyue, the sixth ancestor in China asks him, where do you come from? And Nanyue says, from Mount Sung. And in the sixth ancestor asks him right away, what is it that comes like this? Right here, you. What is it that when you say comes like this? It's said that Nanyue practiced with this koan for eight years. Finally, he comes to the sixth ancestor. I mean, he's practicing with the sixth ancestor, attending on him. He's he says, to say anything, to say it's like 
anything would be wrong. Then the sixth ancestor says, then is it contingent on practice and verification or practice and enlightenment? Nanyue said, practice and enlightenment are not non-existent, but they are undefiled, or they are not to be defiled. Defiled by what? See, this is what Dogen is referring to here. When we have an idea, see, this is how he, why he starts this text from the beginning this way. When we have an idea that our practice, what we're doing, what we're doing as our life, that it's trying to fix something that not, that's not okay, it's trying to get something that we lack, then already we're in trouble. That itself is defiling us, because it's not only defiling us, it's defiling everyone we meet, because we're insisting, they're not okay, they're not okay, of course, they're like me, I'm not okay. I need to practice in order to get better. If that's the way we practice, then we have an idea that practice, that zazen, that what we're doing, okay, I'm going to get a, have a good sitting period. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then I'm going to get good. That's turning it into things that we cling to, things that we like, and things that we don't like things that we want to hold on to and things that we want to get rid of. That's not dispassion. That's not recognizing the ongoing impermanence that is our life, which is exactly where there's no defilement except if we defile it with our stories, with our beliefs. Even though they are undefiled, even though from the beginning it's undefiled. So, what does Dogen continue in Fukan Zazengi? He says, the true vehicle is self-sufficient. What need is there for special effort? What need is there for special effort? And here we've all made an effort to come here and to do practice. So in one sense, you've heard expressions like eating when hungry, sleeping when tired. But another way is to see that what we're doing when we do zazen or when we're doing zazening throughout the day, morning to night, in sashin and in our life, is not doing something special. It's, in a way, you've heard the expression, being ordinary. Or, if I say it more, it's being just this moment. So, let us think for a moment. What do we mean when we think of things as special or as extra or as not ordinary, or as ordinary. So, some, I, I, this true vehicle is self-sufficient. What need is there for special efforts? So, some other English translations, which give you another flavor, are say, the supreme teaching is free. The real vehicle exists naturally. Why should we put forth great effort? Or another translation is, the Dharma vehicle is utterly free and untrammeled. What need is there for our concentrated effort? Free and untrammeled or naturally exists is to make the point for us to see that we don't hinder it and others don't hinder it. See? We don't hinder it and others don't hinder it. And yet we seem to be able to hinder it. See, what does free, what does self-sufficient imply? 
So when when someone says no special effort, what is what is the no? What no what do we mean by no special effort? See what is practice a special effort? See, we need to really reflect what do we believe practice entails? Does it entail adding something on, extra? Or is it ceasing to do something when you're not doing Zazen, something that when you're doing Zazen, you're doing? What is practice? What is not practice? Or, if I say a different way, how does Zazen pervade life or how does it not? If we make special into some sort of self-doing, in some sort of about self and doing, self-added on to being, on to doing, we get into all sorts of trouble. We get into all sorts of trouble because we add self onto our life. That's exactly what the Buddha was addressing in that quote from Mogul, uh, in that response to Mogalana. I might be pronouncing that name not quite the correct way in Pali, but be that as it may. So what is this? The whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? Or another way of saying it, the way is far from delusion. Why are we concerned about a means of eliminating delusion? Or... What, who could believe in sweeping and polishing? Or who could believe in brushing it free? Now you've, I would say, I was going to say you all, but I shouldn't make that assumption. Many of you have heard the expressions about brushing a mirror clean. And yet, for, for all of us, we often believe that there are all sorts of dusts in our lives and certainly in other people's lives. Oh, I can see in all of them all the dust in their life. My own, well, you know, it's, it's their fault. It's their dusts that are making the difficulty. So what are the dusts for us? What are the dusts that we believe about others? What do others believe are dusts for them? And let's not quite miss what do other believe, others believe are dusts for us? So, and yet, who could believe in the means to brush it clean? If our, the whole body, in all the ways that we are, is free from dust. Is it really dust? Where does dust come from? Where does dust go? When we brush it clean, where does it go? When it appears, where does it come from? And yet we find ourselves in all sorts of ways trying to brush dust clean trying to certainly brush dust clean from others, whether in our life or the circumstances or the problems. It is never apart from this very place. What is the use of traveling around to practice? Oh, I'm going too long. Well, I'll come back to that line, because I think that's very important. Um, But I'll stop.
a little before that and see maybe we can talk about this. As I said, I'm going to talk about this text for the next four days. But the text changes. As I said, there's there's three, in a sense, you can talk about the text as having three parts. The first part, which we've just talked about or touched upon, is really um, Dogen's expounding the rationale of practice of Buddha Dharma of Zen. The second part, which we'll get to, um, is the discussion of the form, what you would think of as manual or as recommendations. And the third part is builds on that. Um, so, I, I will start again. It is never apart from this very place. But I, all, I want to also, for one more moment, get, go back to that quote from the dialogue or between Moggallana and the Buddha, where he talks about elimination of craving. And notice that really what he's saying is not that you have to go directly to dealing with something called craving, but in comprehending, in seeing, in experiencing what is so, the craving of itself ceases, or it ceases to be other than something that arises and passes, because because we truly get that nothing is fit to be clung to, because it's always this ongoing changing that is life, that is feelings, and that allows us to embrace them when they come and embrace them when they go. Because we don't add on this or don't cling to this self-other or as we say in the four practice principles, caught in self-centered dream. See, then letting go is natural when things go. When this goes, you let it go. When it comes, you welcome. When you, it goes, because it's not about what you do, but it's, excuse me, it's not about what you create with it, it's whether you cling or add on agitation about its comings and goings. Now that's, of course, explaining. So, let me stop here. As I said, this is, we're in a sense, slowly word by word, sentence by sentence, going through this text, and you will recite this text each day. And some of you have been reciting it regularly, so you're already familiar. So I want us to start really imbibing what's going on here, so that as we recite it, the text recites us, and it becomes something that in a in a way, nurtures our being who we always are. Okay, I will stop here, and maybe there's something for us to say a little more about. I know I've spoken a bit about this, so I'll stop. And if you want to change your position, please do.
I do want to um, thank Shojo, Jim, for um, starting us in reciting the Fukan Zazengi in the afternoon. He, that was his initiative to do so and to have others join him when they were here in the afternoons to, um, in the week to recite it together. It's, um, it is a text that's recited often in, in various practice centers and In a sense, by reciting it over and over, it's almost like it becomes part of you. It's not something you think about, but it becomes part of your being where so that aspects of it can arise in response to circumstances and conditions, just as it is with other texts. That's, in a way, part of the reason we recite the four practice principles to enable that to become active in our life of itself, not because we have to self-direct it, but because it becomes something, if I use a fancy word, we internalize and therefore can live out of as it is reflected in the reality of our functioning or the functioning of others and the universe which is what this is about this is about the, especially the beginning is to, to speaking of what the nature of our very life is if you can get it right there then Zazen is just an ongoing manifestation of all your very life as it is. So. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, uh, for that very profound lecture, actually. Um, the, the paradox of practice is, I mean, I wouldn't have started coming here, and I suspect this is true for others as well, uh, precisely without feeling that something in my life was incomplete or not quite right and the paradox of well there is in some way you have to you have to brush the dust from the mirror in order to realize that there's no dust and no mirror I mean that's, this is the, yes. the, the paradox and, and this is true for Dogen and it's true for Shakyamuni Buddha, as as we hear the story. I mean, we didn't. I didn't get to. That's where I stopped. It is never apart from this place. What's the use of traveling around to practice? And yet, that's where we get to discuss the fact that that isn't. Dogen did just all that, though he says that. What's the use? And he he spent many years traveling and. Traveling in life-threatening ways, but I want to leave that for tomorrow. And yet, and yet, the, the truth of the matter is, as we, even though there's in Buddhist tradition, there's all this talk about the Buddha's practice in so-called other times. Definitely, there's those encounters that he had and had to have in order to then decide he wanted, he was going to practice rather than just continuing the life of the upper class, however it was in his society, of the one with means and pleasures and circumstances that were favorable and enjoyable. And that's the nature, even as the problems there are in part a result of our misperception of what our life is and of our acting on those misperceptions in ways that further entangle us and create harm for us and others. I mean, in a, in a 
simplified sense, we say what Buddha's teaching is, what practice is, is about what causes suffering and how to eliminate or let suffering end or put an end to suffering. Or if we don't want to use the word suffering, we could say unsatisfactoriness. If we want, we could say harming, which is in, in another aspect of it. There's different facets to it. Um, but yes, it's true. And yet he starts from a very different, from the other place. Just as that in that dialogue between the sixth ancestor and Nanyue, he asks, what is comes thus? So he he says, it's not dependent on practice and realization. You could say it that way. And yet, and yet, um, you're not quite, I mean, he spent eight years till he came to the point of saying that it's not that practice and realization are non-existent, but they're undefiled. Undefiled means that they are not, let's say, made into two separate things or made into a means and an end, made into a way to judge bad and then becoming good by our beliefs of we lack them and we need them and we got them but we didn't have them or those other people don't have them. That's the undefiled. Despite the fact that we say and entangle ourselves in all sorts of things, that entanglement is a non-entanglement. And yet as long as it's an entanglement for us, it causes and results in harming and suffering. <coughs> so as long as we believe it, then then we suffer and we cause suffering despite the fact that that isn't the truth, despite the fact that the self-centered perspective is inaccurate, we can make all sorts of trouble by holding on to the inaccurate perceptions. And even the trouble is inaccurate and yet it certainly seems that way and certainly results in suffering because of that seeming way that it is. Because we misperceive and misunderstand who and what our life is, and we act on that basis. And who and what the life of others is. Of course, it's not nothing personal. It's nothing personal, and yet our personal practice is necessary. Um, I find it interesting that I about, you know, that there's that story about the, the two-wheel cart that's a little, one wheel's always off, you know, and it kind of wobbles, uh-huh. like a blip on a screen or something, and we, and somehow we can't ever uh, rectify that, you know, change it, change it to make it fit our idea of what it's supposed to be, uh, uh-huh. it's supposed to be very smooth and with no blips and no awkwardness or yes. something. So as long as I try to you know look at it that way, it's gonna be it's gonna be rough. I'm not just gonna be right, and so I I, I don't really know uh, just how to uh, see it as as it's okay. So if I use these glasses, some things are clearer with them, and some things are worse with them, but. It's the glasses that is doing whatever the changes in the vision are. As you said, as long as you think that way, then there's things that are 
okay and things that are not okay. It's because the glasses, whether they improve or distort, is, is how I'm looking through things. If I have the glasses here on my side and don't put it over my eyes, then despite the fact that one looking through the glasses sees distorted things, I wouldn't believe that the distorted things, despite the fact that I could look through here and see the distorted things, because I know, oh yeah, sure, if I take these glasses, it distorts things. And if I don't take them, it doesn't, or vice versa. If I put the glasses on, then it clears things up. And if I take them off, then it's distorted. But the things themselves don't change in the least. It's a question of what glasses or I put on or take off or what lenses I have or don't have. When one wheel is wobbly and the other isn't, is that worse than when they're both working perfect? Whatever perfect means. In other words, exactly the same. A wobbly cart is a perfectly wobbly cart. And if you have a heavy load, don't use the wobbly cart, use the not wobbly cart. Or use the wobbly cart and know how much more work it's going to be to get wherever you're going with it. And I seem to insist, at least from my point of view, that it's i got to fix that wobbly cart. Or you insist I'm going to take the wobbly cart, but it shouldn't wobble when I'm taking it. I... I am going to continue to use it, but it should get there just as fast as the one where there is no wobble. And I shouldn't feel the wobble. Or at least while I'm on the wobbly cart, I can complain. I have good reason to complain about the wobble, because after all, it shouldn't be here. So part of my trip is going to include my complaining all through the trip. Wobbly carts, a wobbly car, no problem. Unless we have a problem. And there's nothing wrong if you want to change the wheel and put on a, one that doesn't, so it doesn't wobble. That's great too. And that's the point of conditions and circumstances being impermanent and constantly changing. But that's also the part of non-defiled. These glasses that I wear is so that I could read this since my nearsightedness... No. Uh, Yeah. I, I lack my vision looking at print... Um, is not as good as my vision looking at distance. Yes? Um, I'm really uh, glad that you finished the talk with the idea that we could come and recite um, the, what do you call it? Fukan Zazengi. Right. Because then it may makes sense to me <laughs> because um, your talk was so and, and for my experience so esoteric uh-huh. that I couldn't garner much from it at all which caused me to be really many things but uh-huh. one of them was interested uh-huh. in um, coming and seeing if that recitation of it with others over and over and over again because I have had that experience uh-huh. in the past especially with um, the, the robes that never made sense to me best uh-huh. are the robes of liberation until it did uh-huh. so I'm, I'm thinking Jim yeah. will come in the evening to because if we're going to have four more days of this well we're going to be reciting it this afternoon Okay. And, and it, it, you will see that the text 
how the text goes. The text will continue, in a sense. Yeah. Um, there's three. There's, in a sense, the text is first. He's starting to say why <coughs> he, you you would be interested in it. Now, the the truth of the matter is that even though we call it the same text from the 1227 text and the 12, let's say, 40s text. Actually, the early text didn't have much of this part. The early text had this in a more simplified form and then had the basically the, the, the next piece, which, is gonna, which we're going to come to, um, exactly more or less as it is in the later version and then there, there's another ending part in part it's because what happens is Dogen starts off in the capital he goes there and his intention is to write this for everyone to do Zazen however he doesn't, it doesn't seem to work. He has a lot, there's a lot of political um, persecution of Dogen by the religious authorities and by some of the political authorities. He has some support, but it becomes clear to him for political, social, um, economic, and other reasons by 1233 that he has to leave the capital. He's not getting the support he wanted. Other people are getting support. Other different styles of Zen practice are getting support. Um, different styles of Buddhist practice are getting support. And he put, is being subject to persecution. Now, he could have stayed. He did have um, some family members who were high up in the government. But he didn't. Because he decided, in a way, he started to get disciples, and I'll talk about this, from an, another uh, sect called the Darumashu, uh, Daruma school, who were even more persecuted than, than he was by the Buddhist and political authorities. They were banned. Their leader was banned. They were... Um, uh, so they were persecuted. So... Large numbers of them went and started studying with Dogen, first in the capital, and then he went to what would later become Eheji, in off in the mountains and in um, in a northern, a more more western and northern um, uh, peninsula, and he essentially decided that he would give up on. Well, not completely, but mostly give up on trying to teach to the broad population, but focus instead on monastics. Because, and there were lay people who practiced with him, but the primary focus was a monastic, um, and he built what's a large monastery called Eheji. It took him several years. So for several years he lived in a hut in the mountains with, so, with some disciples around him, as Eheji, uh, I think it was originally called Daibutsuji, um, but what became Eheji um, would um, be built. And then this, the, the text that we're reading, gets written, um, designed, even though it, it has some of the earlier parts, it also has more where he emphasizes why he is is saying that this is the way to do practice. And in a sense, this becomes, all of, in, in all his other texts, he's elaborating on various points, that come, some that come up here and some that come up elsewhere, where he's emphasizing this, I'll say it as, the non-duality of practice and realization, or non-duality of um, practice and actualization, practice and awakening, not two different things, so that from the very beginning, 
if you're doing zazen, if you're doing zazening practice throughout the day in a way that is, as he describes, appropriate or as is non-dualistic, is non-defiled, to pick up the term that Nanyue says, then it's not about getting something else. So that becomes the emphasis of his style of practice. Is that what he was being so persecuted for? No, it's much more for no, it wasn't it wasn't for content. It's much more uh, has to do with um, it has to do with the fact that there the religious authorities were it mostly Tendai school were resistant to anyone else having independent, separate power or practice legitimacy. They felt that their practice included every other one, everyone else's practice. It's more complex than that, and there's more to it. I mean, you know, it has to do with the various political forces and the. Um, but I, I can go into it, but I don't think it's okay. to, to the point. Um, in some ways, you'll see that he's not so different than others, though he has a different emphasis. It's always, if we say it simply, this very body is the body of the Buddha, or this very mind is Buddha mind, if I use that kind of word. But we, if I use the word mind... It really means mind, heart, being. Sako shin zebutsu. Sako shin sakobutsu. This mind, heart, this Buddha. Which is really what he ends up teaching. His practice is not a practice of sitting zazen and to go somewhere else, but sitting zazen, being the seated Buddha. Zazening is being Zazening Buddha in all we do, whether walking or cleaning or cooking or... And you add on what you want to add on as or things that you do. Yes? Uh, another thing about the wobbly card. Yes. <laughs> it's just that it occurred to me that when I'm, you know, I'm upstairs, I have that little TV room in yeah. have the antenna up there, you know, it's got to be pointed a certain way in order to get the reception from various stations. And so I'm watching TV, and I'm not, and then I, I you know, PBS was my favorite. So I'm watching PBS, and, and I'm not even almost, I sort of like forget I'm there, you know, I'm just uh-huh. really into the, whatever. And then all of a sudden it goes, it stops, you know, the, the picture stops, and I miss something, and then I, I jump right into, you know, my, my upset about it, and then I seem to appear somehow, and, uh-huh. and it, it's very strange, and, and you know, and, and then I get upset, and so it seemed like that wildly cart and the blip, and everything, it's just my, my yeah. you know, our self-centered. It, it, it comes in, in me, for me. It seems like it comes immediately to the foreground. Right, and and the wobbly antenna with the with the winds of circumstances that make it change. Because I know you sometimes then finally decide, okay, I'll get up on the roof yeah. and I'll, 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 I'll move it back after the winds have moved it in that way. I don't know what goes on in between. Yeah? Yeah, I don't know how it changes. I mean, I got it wired down so it won't do that. But, but the winds, are, the winds <laughs> and the earth wobbles too. And the building wobbles. Even though you don't have earthquakes here, it still wobbles. <laughs> In California, we could say, oh, it's the earthquakes that wobbled it. And that's the thing. We, we have ideas that we believe, if I get it all nailed down, or wired down, to the way it's going to be, then the universe, certainly my feelings, and those all around me who I'm wiring down by the various agreements and plans about how they should be aren't going to be subject to the ongoing impermanence. And therefore, if they are, 
it's their fault and I need to become upset with them or myself. Or worse. Or get hurt about how they didn't stay wobbled, I mean, it didn't stay uh, wired down. Or how my body didn't stay wired the way it was supposed to. I was supposed to have it exactly this way. I did everything. I ate the right foods, and I did the right exercise, and I took the right, even medicine, and then somehow it didn't quite do it. Or I did all the good things at work that I thought I should have, except I indulged a little in my this and that. But, you know, I'm allowed to do those things. And then I got into trouble with something. Or who knows what. I said something to my partner or family member, and they know I always say those things. It doesn't mean anything, except they got upset or hurt. Yes? Uh, do you have uh, text that's readable uh, for us, uh, like the not take home? I know you don't have that, but... Fukan Zazengi, you will, you will get it in, in a few hours. Uh, but, you know, that's a good idea. She can take one home. No, but I was going to say, it might be good to, at the beginning of the talk to pass it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean... Well, yes. Okay, yeah, sure. We do that tomorrow. Yes. I assume that most of you were familiar with this text, since you've all been, since it's been chanted here <coughs> regularly. <laughs> I've never heard it. Never heard Fukaza Zangi. We made um, enough copies to go around, and, and they're available for people <coughs> You know what? How about now, instead of waiting for the F for the end, we'll chant it now, and then at the end we'll just end without it chanting it. What? Ah, changing things. <laughs> <laughs>